Frank Hamalitic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brank Amalytic, and today we have with us one of our one of our returning guests, Dick Clark. As principal and building designer of Envirotecture, Dick Clark is once again the Sustainability Awards Chair. With more than 35 years' experience, Dick focuses exclusively on ecologically sustainable and culturally appropriate buildings, as well as sustainable design vehicles and vessels. He is Director of Sustainability for the Building Designers Australia, or the BDA, and is a founding member of the Association of Building Sustainability Assessors, the ABSA, and the Australian Built Environment Council, or ASVEC. And as mentioned, he is once again the head judge for this year's 2021 Sustainability Awards, which will be happening November 11 this year. So welcome back to Talking Architecture and Design, Dick Clark. Thank you, Branko. You make me sound like uh, my name is Dick Tater, not Dick Clark. The being head judge doesn't give me any more clout in the process than all the other judges. And I have to say that it's a wonderfully democratic process and yes. it's fun to be part of. And, and, and you also get to do more work too. Um, apart from that joyful aspect of it, yeah. Um, I've got to ask the obvious elephant in the room question or the, or the pandemic in the room question. How has the lockdown pandemic and whatnot been treating you? Ah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? It affects your state of mind to some extent. Um, if you look at our finances in, in Envirotecture, uh, it hasn't, in short. Um, we signed up for JobKeeper on the advice of the government, like everybody else, and after the first month's round, we gave it back. We said, look, this is ridiculous. Um, our work has not diminished. We don't need this, uh, and it's wrong. We shouldn't have it. Are you listening, Jerry Harvey? Uh, anyway, I was about to say, I'll give you Jerry's email. I think I have it somewhere. <laughs> Moving on. Um, but look, it, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that we have to deal with and it is what it is. Uh, here we are back in lockdown for us on the Northern Beaches, um, lockdown version three, I think. Um, yes, the big, uh, in terms of big lockdowns. And so our staff have all taken their computers home and uh, we're working on the cloud and, and so on, but life goes on. Um, all I can do is, is hold out a hand as, of sympathy to, to others, for instance, those in the tourism and ecotourism industries and, and so on that, um, and, and retail that just really suffer badly in this. Yeah, I agree. It's probably not the time to go out building that B&B that you've always wanted. Um, I was, was going to say, so do you wonder, on, 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 sorry, on that theme, do you, I, I do wonder, and do you think that COVID, and I, some people have said the infirmity of this, that COVID has taught us a thing or two about resilience and design, uh, which in a way, well, in, in a direct way, I guess, um, overlaps with sustainability. Um, I think it probably has added to some even more powerful lessons that came out of the Black Summer uh, from 2019-20 uh, and, and then the floods that followed in 2020 that I think have made it pretty clear to communities and governments together that 
we are not well prepared for the fury of nature when it is unleashed upon us. Um, and so resilience, you know, yeah, it's, it's a spot on, um, it's a spot on term. How do we deal with these things? How do we um, bend and be flexible without breaking? And, uh, and things like, well, issues like, for instance, the raising of Warragamble uh, Dam Wall in Sydney, which is a um, hot potato politically, um, you know, it, all sorts of modelling has, has shown that, that that on its own isn't actually um, a solution. It doesn't really solve the problems of flooding in Western Sydney, where most of the water enters the Western Sydney basin of the Hawkesbury and the Perm downstream of the dam. And, uh, and the Black Summer fires, of course, you know, <laughs> gee, we could go on for hours about that one. And so then you, you overlay COVID on top of all of that. And, and, and I know this has been said before, but if somebody had written a disaster movie with these three things as a plot, <laughs> people are sitting in the cinema shaking their head going, well, that'll never happen. That yeah. is just so unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, yet here we are. So the, the resilience of community and the resilience of our facilities and our buildings needs to have a, um, you know, a pretty close look at it. And um, we could look at the rollout or stroll out of the, um, the vaccine nationally and, and learn some big lessons there. We could look at how lockdowns are done now compared to, say, last year and having more targeted lockdowns, although, you know, once again, you could criticise uh, Gladys for being about a week late with the Sydney lockdown and perhaps Perth, uh, Mark McGowan, for being about a week early for his, but, you know, they're, they're fine-tuning issues. So um, as a community, I think it's interesting that, that we, we have come together as a bunch of individuals and shown pretty good resilience. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to uh, browbeat government too much because there has been support in various ways for people who are suffering. Um, sure, actors might not have got the, or musicians might not have got the same support as some others and, and, and so on. But, you know, nonetheless, we do have a safety net and we have these things that, that do keep community resilient. Our buildings, however, somewhat different story. Yeah, look, um, I'm just a bit shocked that you, you dared contradict Queen, Queen Gladys there. How could you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the halo has slipped a little bit this week. Yeah. I was going to say, though, that, um, you know, this issue with, with, um, with uh, the pandemic, it's really funny you said that horror movie. Um, so, far, so far in the past year, we've had, uh, well, thereabouts a year, we've had um, massive fires, we've had floods, we've had a pandemic, um, I don't know about your where you live, but my part of Sydney, we're having a rat plague. You know, all that's missing is actually pest, uh, is actually locusts flying around, and, <laughs> and we're pretty much on the whole biblical thing, haven't we? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the mouse plague further out. You know, the the the, the real mouse plague um, further out, as against the rats. Yeah. Um, yeah, indeed. And on the northern beaches, uh, we haven't seen the the rats or mice come this far yet, but we've had a real tick epidemic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's a weird thing. Yeah. Okay. So this is your, I believe, is this your fifth year you're head judge for the awards, or is it, is it or, or is it more than that? Has it, has it um, I've I've lost count, Branko. So let's not worry about it. Okay. So it's your fifth year. We'll just leave it at that. Um, and um, what? I, okay. So what are you hoping to see for Andrew this year? I mean, we've had, I guess, every year. I mean, we've had 
you know, a number of, I guess, different types of entries. But we, we seem to have a lot of, well, we have a lot of residential, no surprise there, um, being Australia. But, you know, what are you hoping to see this year? I mean, in terms of what would you like to see in terms of entries and entrance? Um, I guess the thing that continues to irritate me about our, the, the way we build things is that we are still building too big. Okay. So I'm always looking for things that are smaller and smarter. And, and I don't want to name names or bag the opposition here, but there was another design award process recently run by another organisation. And I went through the short list uh, and looked at the projects and there wasn't a single project there that would have cost less than 5 million. And there were several that were up around the 10 and 12 million mark. And this is single residential. Wow. That, that is, and, and they had a sustainability category. Um, th that's not sustainable. That, they're aspirational, but that's nothing to do with sustainability. Sure, humans, you know, we all have aspirations and that's fine. But in terms of sustainability of the built environment, if our aspirations were to uh, not consume materials to the point of uh, denuding our ecology and depriving future generations of an opportunity to enjoy what we enjoyed in the sort of boomer period through to the to the 80s and 90s and you know before deforestation had kicked into the same extent before climate change had bleached the roof too badly etc 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 you know the list is long um, that that's what I would like to see most of all so I'm, I'm hoping we don't see too many of the grand and glorious five and ten million dollar um, residential projects it would be nice to see that sector take a bit of a lead from the commercial sector who have been doing things a bit smarter for a bit longer, um, where a more logical eye is cast over the, the parameters of a project at the very start. I've got to say, well, that's interesting. Yeah? You talk about, you know, $10 million home. It's a bit like using the Versailles Palace as an advertisement for, you know, energy saving. But yeah. uh, I've got to say that one thing that I would like to see is more rammed earth. And I only say that because um, I didn't realise how bloody good it is in terms of, you know, um, saving on, on, on well, temperature and, and energy use. I was actually absolutely good a bit more. And there was a recent article of in the Herald about some, um, or Domain or one of those, yeah, um, about some house down, I think down on the south coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw that. Yeah, look, it, it's uh, Ram Earth is is a material that has got uh, an eye-wateringly beautiful aesthetic. There's no doubt about it, and provided the the earth isn't sourced from too far away, and, and ideally, you know, the kind of holy grail of of Ram Earth is that you source it from your uh, excavations for the foundations of the building. Um, so you know the the earth basically moves from down there to up here. But um, most people do have to source theirs from a little further afield just so that it's the right consistency. Um, but the, one of the curious things about round earth, and I, I, in the, uh, the Your Home technical series that I've had a uh, hand in helping write and edit ever since the first one back in 2002, um, I was given a bit of a poison, poison chalice to... Uh, to do some work editing that 
fact sheet and Sanctuary magazine, uh, who you know you would know of um, as a, that organ of renew that reaches out to aspirational people and tries to steer them towards more sustainable outcomes. Uh, it also gave me a poison chalice to write a story about how to do round earth and, and mud brick, the, the high mass heavy heavy wall things. And, and I say the poison chalice because it's the... <laughs> and I'm pausing and hesitating here because it's kind of hard to know how to, uh, how to say this without... Um, offending people, one of the things that is most powerful about round earth because of its thermal mass is its ability to regulate temperature. But technically, if you actually look at the physics of the stuff, if it is just a, um, a monolithic external wall with no cavity or insulation in it, and that is traditional round earth, mm -hmm. then it is actually quite conductive. And on the south side of a building, for instance, that receives no winter sun when it is available, it is going to be a constant heat sink. Uh, on the west side in summer, if it's not shaded, it's going to be a, a constant heat sink the wrong way around and sinking heat from outside to in. Mm. On the north side, if it gets good winter sun, it warms up during the day, that's going to stabilise temperature. That's a really nice thing. And, and so there's been this kind of war between the building physicists, the the, the thermal performance assessors, most of whom would belong to associations like ABSA and, uh, and, and others like that, and, and the pr practitioners uh, of the high mass monolithic wall type who would say, but we know these buildings work. And they do. So how do we drill down and figure out why they work anecdotally when the physics said they, says they need some insulation in the wall to, to prevent that conductivity from happening. And I, <laughs> I've attempted to kind of bridge the, the, uh, the gap here. And you know what it's like when a bloke um, stands across the gap with his one foot on one side and one foot on the other, what's exposed. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm quite open to, uh, to visceral damage with this one. But my position was that anecdotally, they work because they're built for people who are enthusiasts, who know how to run a building, so they know when to get the sun in. And they're designed well from the passive point of view of admitting lots of winter sun and excluding summer sun. And, and they're run by enthusiasts who know how to, to, to make these buildings hum and sing to, you know, to, the, to their maximum potential. And so if one wall is colder than it should be, the rest of the building is making up for it by virtue of how well it works. And any shortfall is made up by the fact that as enthusiasts, they don't mind putting on a jumper or they don't mind running the ceiling fan a bit harder in summer. And so they will always come out anecdotally and say, hey, the building works. And in terms of the actual energy it consumes, it does. These, these are zero net heating and cooling energy buildings. But the physics says you need to insulate it. and and it has gradually kind of taken hold um, amongst the, uh, the practitioners of round earth buildings that they do need to do this. And various people have found innovative ways of doing it. And then the buildings, uh, basically they pick up their skirts and they fly. Uh, they become amazing high performance buildings that are actually much less reliant on the knowledge and enthusiasm of their occupants. 
So, yeah, interesting story. I was going to say that sound you hear, Dick, is you being defriended off, off a lot of social media platforms right now. <laughs> well, look, it, it's um, <laughs> it's one of those things where everybody has a point of view, and um, I, you know, I, I did have some interesting conversations with some of the muddies and the and the round earthies, um, but I, I think they've kind of moved to the point of going, okay, um, in a world where we need to demonstrate and be able to model uh, a high level of thermal performance, then we do need to do things a bit, a bit differently and we can't rely on, on the enthusiasm and skill of our occupants because, uh, as, as you're probably aware and most listeners would know, simulation tools like NATERS and, and even uh, PHPP in uh, Passive House makes some assumptions about how people are going to use the building and, and they they kind of assume that these are people with average knowledge and average skill and they will not do the utterly wrong thing, but they also probably don't do the best they could always do in every situation. I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And now back to our podcast. I mean, I've, I, I've had umpteenth number of conversations with people what, what I'll, you know, without obviously giving holding their hand, telling them what they need to do and what they don't probably shouldn't have to do. But what, as, as head judge, what would you say that people are missing out on in their submission? Yeah. Look, at the risk of giving away some, some trade secrets here, no, I, I'm happy to really. Um, but often when, when I enter design awards in, in you know, other spheres, uh, knowing what I know as a judge, I go, okay, we need to... to um, format and pitch this in a way that the judges are going to be quick, quickly able to get their heads around the breadth and depth of the information about how this building works and what it does and why. So, um, and, and when I do that, I think there are a whole bunch of other people that are just going to write arky wank spin and, and deluge the, the judges in, in long sentences of, of arky speak and their eyes are going to glaze over and spin on. So... <laughs> At the risk of giving away a tactical advantage in the other design awards that I enter, uh, let me share the secrets from a judge's point of view. You need all the information. Now, I know Branko has said this before and all of his staff that have chased up people over the years have said this time and time again. I cannot stress enough that if you submit an entry with inadequate information, the judges have no option but to go, not enough to judge it on, put it aside. So that, that's number one. Second, Forget the archy speak. This is not an architectural wanky magazine. You're trying to woo some befuddled, easily beguiled reader with. These are your peers. They can see through your spin. So don't use it. <laughs> um, write clear, factual information and preferably, if you want to really cut through quickly, in dot form. So don't use long, wordy paragraphs. It takes judges too long to read and they quickly go, this is just a snow job, this is spin, move on. So dot points, full information, factual information, 
And the more hard facts you can give us, the better you will fare. So things like data on thermal performance or water consumption or embodied energy or whatever it might be, any data you've got that can be supported and is factual, that doesn't just come from some greenwashy um, source that means nothing, will help your cause. So that, they're probably the three um, big things. If, if we could get people to do all of that, I, I reckon we'd be able to do a better job and, and reward better buildings more easily. And on that, I mean, what you just said should actually make people's submissions simpler, shouldn't they? Yes, indeed. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm forever getting getting told, oh, but we've got no time, you know? Well, I mean, what you what you just said not only helps you get, get ahead of the pack, but it should actually, you know, make your life simpler. I mean, anyway, who knows? Look, um, I was going to say that on the point of awards, um, I've been I've been to a couple of well I've been to one actually two awards so far um, during this pandemic and I, I don't know how many you've been to but do you think the pandemics have changed uh, in architecture industry awards and if so how and I, I asked that because in May I was in the Heri heritage awards New South Wales heritage awards and um, half the people at my table were wearing masks which was really weird um, but bar that in terms of in terms of actual the way the awards are judged and presented and maybe even even even, even attended, do you think the pandemic's changed the way the awards are being done? Um, look, I think it's, it's changed the way the whole economy works in that we are now much more comfortable uh, with separation. And I don't just mean physical distancing when we're face-to-face -face and, and mask wearing, but... but, but, but uh, Separation in terms of working remotely. Um, I mean, two or three years ago, if if you'd said to somebody, oh, I'll catch you with a Zoom bit later on, nobody would have known what the heck you were talking about. And now we're Zooming all the time. Um, save me from Microsoft Teams that all the governments have to use for some strange reason to do with security clearances or something. Um, I have to say I, I hate Teams and it hates me right back. But um, that's, uh, that aside, you know, even when it does work properly and sound and video work together, um, you know, there's just that ability to, to communicate effectively remotely has changed. And so if, for instance, when we um, do the judging, if we're in a, a continued lockdown situation, I think we will be able to do it quite well because we've come, become quite practised at it. But... It does help when you already know the people that you are um, interacting with remotely. If you've met people for the first time on screen, it can be a little hard to read the nuances in their facial expressions and tones of voice. Uh, that, that is how we relate to each other when we get together you know, physically. Now you very quickly get to work out what a person means when they go, mm, or, mm etc. Um, it can be a little disconcerting sometimes to hear someone make a noise like that, that, you know, we sort of take for granted when we're working face to face, but you really don't know what lies behind it. So that, that's the downside of it. But look, in, in terms of um, the, the quality of the outcome, no, I, I think this is the resilience of humanity. You know, we're quite good at adapting. So I think we'll be fine.
projects and, and whatnot. We feature a lot of projects in the magazine, and I, I look at a fair few projects. And also, you know, I see houses around me and whatnot. Um, it seems to me, and, and, I'm, and I, this is just out of, out of purely out of for my own interest. It seems to me that there is a, there is a continuing trend or even an increasing trend for houses with massive outdoor areas with huge openings. Um, basically, it's, it's like it's almost it's it's like someone's trying. It's like it's like it's taking a sock and putting a hand in it and turning it yeah, inside out. It's like someone's taking the entire inside of the house and they're sticking it in the backyard. Um, mm -hmm. And there's this massive opening with, with no fly screens, with no nothing. And you, you could, some of these places, like, like the $5 million place you spoke about, you could actually fly a jumbo through it. It looks like a hangar opening. What, is, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I'm, and I'm asking you because I really, because I have my own ideas, which I won't share just, just yet, but what are your thoughts on this? And how does that actually affect sustainability? Mm. Because I get, I get confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, fair enough. Um, and, and look, I have to say that uh, done the right way, I, I think it can be a really good thing. And one of my key influences in, in life was Rick Laplastria, who, uh, whose own house in Lovett Bay was one room surrounded by, uh, I don't you could call it technically a veranda, I guess, but it was just, you know, a large outdoor living area living eating sleeping area and there was one room in the center of all of this that was really a retreat when things got too bad to be outside um and and even his bath and bathroom and toilet were out um you know quite remote from the house and when he wanted a hot bath he had a cast iron bath sitting out on some bricks and he'd light a fire underneath it and with the water on it and, and lower his uh his um, lovely old buttocks into the warm water, <laughs> hopefully not burn them when they hit the bottom. Uh -huh. But um, the so the, the the principle I think is fine, provided certain fundamental rules of orientation are not broken. So, for instance, if you have a very deep outdoor space to the north when you're in southern Australia with the cool winters, that's going to be a problem because it's going to prevent anything but uh, early morning and late afternoon sun from getting into to warm the inner core of the building. Um, but if it's on the west, that would be a really good thing because it's going to shield it from the, the late after or the afternoon summer heat, etc. And and you know if you're up the north of Australia, then that changes again because of where the the sun uh, moves south in the the height of the the wet at the end of the wet season. Uh, sorry, the start of the wet season at the you know the end of the dry. Um, so yeah, it really depends on, on how it's done. But I, I, the, the reason I welcome the move is if it is shrinking the internals of the house, then you're, in, in, you're making people focus on, on the outdoor world. You're making them engage with the weather on the day. And I think that engagement with nature is a critical thing. Both for our psychological well-being, but also because we then tend to make decisions that reflect um, an understanding of how the natural world works, and those decisions affect what we do at the supermarket or the shops. It affects what they do, what we do at the, the ballot box. It, it has all sorts of effects that that are quite profound. So, um, if, however, it just means that 
this is a, an adjunct to an already overly huge house, then yeah, not such a good thing. I, lo I love visiting houses like that, you know, having, you know, barbecues and dinner parties or whatever. I don't know if I could live in a house like that. I'm, I'm, I mean, I love the outdoors, um, but I just think that, like, in winter you would freeze. And, okay, if you're in Townsville, that's great. Um, you could probably be outdoors most, most of the year, except you'd need a baseball bat to kill all the, kill all the insects that are, that are trying to get in. So I'm, or snakes or crocodiles or whatever else I got up there. So I, I just find that a bit, to me, it's like, it's like convertibles. You know, cars, they look really, really good, but they're kind of impractical. Anyway. <laughs> uh, that's good. Um, look, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and certainly the, the mosquito issue uh, and the flies um, can be a, a problem, and it depends on where you are. And it's interesting that some of those buildings that, that we've seen in, in recent months do appear to be rural, and if they are anywhere within cooey of people grazing sheep or cattle, then they're going to have a lot of flies to deal with. And that yeah, does introduce some practical issues. And, and perhaps they will end up enclosing those, or if not all, part of those big outdoor spaces with fly screening. Um, but the, the, the winter thing, yeah, look, it, it's, if it's in the right location, then I think you get a lot of use out of it most of the year and a huge amount of use out of it for a part of the year. Um, so, for instance, in Sydney today, we've had sunshine and showers. At the moment where I am, the sun's shining. I would be outside doing this if, if we were not recording it because the bird noise would be such a distraction. So I'm sitting inside, but I'm looking out at the sunshine and it's probably about 19 degrees, which with a light jumper on, you're sitting in the sun, beautiful. But about half past three, four o'clock when the sun falls below the trees, um, the air temperature is going to plummet. Yep, I'd be withdrawing back inside. Um, so I think that you know, having the, the choice of spaces and being able to move between is a, a good thing. And, and especially if those outdoor spaces have got some seasonal variability. So you've got a north-facing sun trap for the morning coffee in winter, but somewhere south or, or shaded from the summer sun to do exactly the same thing away from the sun in summer. Are there parts of the sector itself, I mean, and not, not to do with, you know, pandemics and whatnot, um, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to pretend that there is no pandemic, um, which is why I'm sitting you know in my home office with my dog next to me. That's normal, right? But are there parts of the the architectural sector, well, the architecture, building design, if you want to call it, the the A B C D E sector as I call it, um, that are changing at present? And if so, how? I mean, in my mind, I was expecting a lot more technology to be pervasive in the sector in terms of the way you guys work. I don't, I'm not saying that at the moment, but that could be just me. So are there parts that are changing? And if so, how? Now, um, Branko, do you mean technology in terms of how we produce what we produce or 
or in the things that we produce. No, how, how you produce stuff, you know. Yeah, okay. No, I agree with you. Uh, ten, ten years ago, I said, well, we'll all be on BIM within five years and, and we'll have on the cloud somewhere the model of the building and everybody will be contributing to it um, and, and no more mistakes. Oh, dear, so naive. No more mistakes will be made with clashes of, of different elements of the building because we'll have worked it out in the model. Well, here we are, <laughs> 10 years later, and, uh, you know, we're working with structural engineers who go, oh, no, we haven't done anything with BIM yet. No, it's too hard, too hard. Um, now, I know that the, the really big buildings, um, uh, you know, the, the big end of town certainly have embraced that and to great effect, but it has not yet filtered down to the middle and, and um, the middle size and, and smaller size tier uh, practices. And even the, the larger practices, people we know say, yeah, well, some of the projects go BIM all the way and some don't. Um, so even there, it's a mixed bag. Now, what else has changed, I guess, technologically is that so many more people now with the NBN and, and other things that have somewhat sped up uh, and made somewhat more reliable our ability to, to do things on the cloud and to interact with each other in that way. There are more practices um, and individual sole practitioners who are using things on the cloud and, uh, for instance, um, their, their CAD model might live on the cloud and their client, even down to the single residential scale, their client might have a CAD viewer of one kind or another that's compatible with their file type and the, the designer will work on it during the day, it'll live on the cloud, the client will come home at night, they'll load up their viewer and, and, and go for a walkthrough and a flyover and, and so on and so forth. So all, all that has, has moved on, but it is, it's not integrated from start to finish. No, and it frustrates me that it hasn't because I think there is a lot of potential for productivity gains and uh, avoiding problems if we do get to that point. It reminds me of, of watching 1975, you know, documentaries about how in the year 2000 we're all going to have flying cars. Um, I'm still waiting for my flying car. I don't know about <laughs> you, but um, yeah. I haven't got mine yet. Yeah, look, it, the, the issue with VR and whatnot, and, yeah, and all sorts of other, you know, cloud technology, which are really useful for, for a whole lot of things, are great. But it's it's almost as if it's almost as if we've reached some sort of Oh, how would I call it? Well, that's sounding overtly dramatic, like a Rubicon, which we're not crossing or we can't cross when it comes to technology, and we're sort of we're slowing down with the with the um, you know with the adaptation of, of technology, um, and, and not just across architecture and design, but I'm seeing a whole lot of other sectors too. Uh, or maybe it's just that no one's got any money anymore. So <laughs> I'm not sure which it is. Mm. Um, I think that, that that's an interesting point that you make about the Rubicon. Um, I have always thought that the change, whether it's social change or technological change, happens in leaps and plateaus. Um, a little bit like the tide, you know, you think, oh, low tide to high tide, it's a continuum. It's not. It's a whole lot of ebbs and flows within that general ebb and flow. And um, so people talk about Moore's law, um, that the computing power doubles every two years. Um, there's another school of thought that says Moore's law doesn't apply. It's actually White's law, which is about not every two years, but about how demand drives things. So um, that, that if you have accelerated demand, you get this uh, exponential increase in capacity or 
performance or whatever. Uh, but it, as soon as demand backs off, then it slows right down again. So I think there are a whole bunch of things, and, and I'm sure there are some PhDs out there being written about this stuff much more eloquently than I can now. But nonetheless, you know, we see things kind of come and go in, in ebbs and flows. And, and I think you, you're right, that like we've been on a plateau now for a few years and, and therefore can we expect in the next couple of years to have a sudden leap forward where uh, everything from the surveyor to the, the building designer and architect through to the structural engineer, the mech engineer, hydraulic engineer, et cetera, and so forth, everybody's, you know, centred around this one BIM model. And, and we look back and go, gee, why did it take us so long to get here? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. Well, there's five months or so to go to the um, Sustainability Awards. So um, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too, too Nick. Always. Right. Thank you very much for your time, Principal of Envirotecture and the 2021 Head Judge for the Sustainability Awards, Dick Clark. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Brank Homolytic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.